Welcome to episode 45 of Oscar Podcast. With um, I'm here with Craig Kennedy from LivingInCinema.com and Ryan Adams and me, Sasha Stone from AwardsDaily.com. And this week we're going to launch into 1992 when Clint Eastwood won his first round of Oscars. He would win again later for Million Dollar Baby because he's Mr. Hollywood. But this was for the re- re- revisionist Western, Unforgiven. I, I don't have a gun. I am not armed. Pick up that rifle. Pick it up. Shells, too. gunfighter will always fire on the best shot first. Is that so? Yeah, little Bill told me that. You probably killed him first, didn't you? I was lucky in the order. But I've always been lucky when it comes to killing folks. And so, who was next? It was Clyde, right? He must have killed Clyde. Well, it could have been Deputy Andy, wasn't he? Or, or, or... All I can tell you is who's going to be last. this to die like this I was building a house deserves got nothing to do with it I'll see you in hell while you money It was. Uh, it really had no competition other than a few good men, which kind of went into the race as the strongest contender. But it had its own problems, and um, Unforgiven had no problems. It it just uh, it sailed to victory. Who can resist Clint? Right? Who can resist an actor turned director? Um, 
Uh, we have a little bit to talk about before we launch into 1992, right, you guys? Did we, did we decide? We, we wanted to, I wanted to talk a little bit about black cinema um, in the wake of Malcolm X, which was also from 1992, uh, and how it relates to today with the three really strong African-American, well, two really strong African-American and one British director, you know, black directors making really strong films this year and how different things were back in 1992. And you, Craig... And following on the year 1991, when John Singleton was 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 nominated for Best Director, although Boys in the Hood was not, because it was really not an Oscar-type movie. You would not, I'm not surprised that Boys in the Hood was not nominated for Best Picture. But it's great that John Singleton was, and at such a young age, that the directors recognized his talent and his his style at that age, and that he um, I, I was the first black director ever nominated. Right. And so then I I think that sort of set the stage for the possibility that Malcolm X might have done better than than it actually did. Oh, yeah. And we'll we'll talk about Malcolm X, too, once we get into Mm -hmm. that, because I feel a great injustice was done against that film. And I can understand Mm -hmm. within the context of that year why it went down the way it did. But I think it, it, like the color purple when Spielberg tried to make that movie, I, I feel like the Malcolm X experience really had a negative impact on black filmmakers for decades you know, mm-hmm. um, everything that could go wrong did go wrong. So, and it was highly publicized. Everybody in Hollywood yeah. must have known about all the controversy and all the conflicts and uh, and all of the struggles that that went into making that movie. And as as uh, and Spike Lee is not somebody who's just going to be quiet about all that. No. And so it was it was always it was always in the news. And I think that it, it, it's people in Hollywood didn't like that. It right. took them a long time to get over it. And it has kind of a long, interesting story attached to it, how it got made. And so Unforgiven won, and that is, you know, Clint Eastwood's movie, which actually was called The Cut Whores. Oh, I forgot the real first first name of the script, um, but Clint Eastwood had held on to it for... Um, like a decade, yeah, right? Yeah, like 15 because, years. And he said he had to age into it mm-hmm. um, before he made it, which is interesting to think that he sat on that script that long. Um, let me see if I can find the name here. I might have it. The um, Cut Horror's something. The Cut Horror's Revenge or... Oh, The Cut Horror Killings. That's what it's called. The Cut Horror Killings, which got changed to Unforgiven. Uh, and it, then it was called the William Money, the William Money Killings, which is, you know, really a, terrible. At least Cut Horror's <laughs> has, has whores in it. At least you know you're going to get some whores. Yeah. Can you imagine, though? And the Oscar goes to The Cut Horror's. <laughs> That's not going to happen. <laughs> There's so many good things in Unforgiven. I just watched it the other day. and um, First of all, Gene Hackman totally steals the show. It just walks away with the movie. You can pretty much say that about every movie that he's in. Yeah. Gene, Gene Hackman stole that movie. He's so, uh, he's so wonderful. He is the best, man. The best. What if I was to say you was a no good son of a bitch and a liar? And then if I was to say that you shit in your pants because of a cowardly soul... But you'd show me that pistol right quick, wouldn't you? You'd shoot me dead. Isn't that so? Maybe, yeah, I guess. But the fact is, I ain't carrying no firearm. Get out.
What's this for? Snakes and such? Yeah. We don't have any snakes in here, Mr. Hendershot. Mr. Beauchamp. This is the kind of trash I'm thinking of. You find this kind in all saloons and all your prosperous communities. Wichita? Over in uh, Cheyenne? find him in a town of big whiskey. Hurry up. You know what to say, little Bill. But he, um, he didn't want to do it because he was sick of violence, I guess, after uh, Mississippi burning. He, he had said he didn't want to do any more violence, but, of course, he couldn't say no to Clint Eastwood, and he did it anyway. And he has a great part in Unforgiven. He plays this really awful... He's the sheriff, right? He plays the town mm-hmm. sheriff. Mm-hmm. Um, Complete asshole. Yeah, really bad dude. And um, Unforgiven is so well written. I think the strongest thing about it is its script. Did you say that Gene Hackman, did you mention that he won Best Supporting Actor? Is that yeah. why you brought him? Yeah, okay. I, I know I didn't mention that, but yes, he won yeah. Best Supporting Actor. Clint won Best Director. The film won Best Picture. Um, the year started with a few good men heading into the Oscar race as the big favorite. Um, but... Something funny happened at the Golden Globes because at the Golden Globes, the film that beat A Few Good Men, which it should have won there, but it didn't because it was beaten by Scent of a Woman. And it caused a bit of a controversy, and I actually remember it. I'm old enough to remember that because Scent of a Woman was kind of underpraised by critics. They really didn't um, go for it. And nobody expected it to win the Golden Globe, so people assumed something fishy was up. And uh, I'll read you guys a passage here from Inside Oscar about that if you want me to. Mm -hmm. Please. It says, um, uh, okay. Two weeks later, Bernard Weintraub, the New York Times Tinseltown correspondent, expanded upon Variety's expose, reporting that Hollywood is buzzing that numerous members of the Hollywood Foreign Press flew in mass to see the film, Scent of a Woman, and to meet Al Pacino. Before the vote... Um, whereas Variety had matter-of-factly reported that the scent of a woman trip was a gift from Universal, the Times report had echoes of Rashomon. One executive said that the studio paid another, um, that the studio paid. Another said the foreign press group might have doled out some money for the airfare. And the Hollywood Foreign Press Association says it's not really sure. President Van Blaricom wondered, what's the difference if we paid or not? The difference, pointed out Weintraub, was that the junket for Scent of a Woman came close to the groups voting its awards, which then went to the unheralded film. Probably damaged most by Scent of a Woman's upset victory was A Few Good Men, which was the kind of slick entertainment that Hollywood foreign press generally favored and which now smelled like a loser. Director Rob Reiner vented his spleen to Weintraub, asserting that a kind of cheesiness permeates that organization. Reiner was careful not to criticize the foreign press's voting results, instead complaining that the main thrust seems to be an elaborate scheme to have their pictures taken with you. They interview you, and then they come at you, one at a time, one after another, to pose for a picture. Sure, I want to promote my movie, but I don't want to waste my time with people who are just pushing for a photo op. 
He also vowed that he would never again waste his time at a Golden Globes awards party. The London-based Screen International reminded its readers that Reiner had no such objections when Kathy Bates won the best Golden Globe for (laughs) Reiner's misery. That innuendo that their votes could be bought by a trip to the Big Apple hurt the feelings of the Hollywood Press Association to no end. The group placed a full-page ad in the trade industry papers headlined, An Open Letter to the Industry. The members of the HFPA would like to refute strongly the suggestion that the win of Scent of a Woman at the recent Golden Globe Awards had to do with anything but the merits of the film. To insinuate otherwise does a disservice not only to the integrity of our membership, but to the artistic contribution of the film's participants. After listing four other movies that won no Golden Globes despite out-of-town junkets, the association went on the offensive. It has always been easy for some of our colleagues in the domestic press to dismiss our work. It is ignorant Is it ignorance due to our accents? Is it unacceptable if any other members um, complement their income with other work? Or in this case, is some domestic press being used by disgruntled parties? We urge them to take a long, hard look at their attitudes toward the foreign press, an attitude that we find condescending and at worst xenophobic. The integrity of the foreign press was attested to by Gregory Peck, who had given a Lifetime Achievement Globe to his co-star for designing women, Lauren Bacall. In some ways, the show used to be more fun when it was corrupt, but now it's honest. So <laughs> some things never change. <laughs> the Golden Globe is still buying, you know, still bought off. You know? Well, it's it's ironic gone. having, uh, having uh, Ro- uh, Rob Reiner, who is... He, he makes the perfect kind of softball catnip for an organization like that, that he would be the one that has a problem with it. <laughs> softball catnip. <laughs> they, they eat that kind of stuff up, that slick, you know, well-acted, decent script, but generally bland kind of kind of entertainment. That Rob uh, Reiner and, and Ron Howard both. Exactly. Yeah, I, re- I remember the fallout from that hurt both Scent of a Woman and A Few Good Men, but it hurt A Few Good Men more. Um, at that time, Son of a Woman ended up getting a Best Picture nomination, I think, simply because it, it did win the Globe. That's the main reason it won that. But I have to say I'm kind of a fan of that movie. You know, I, I, I've watched it many times, and I find it very touching, this relationship between these two men, and I always fall for it at the end. I wouldn't go so far as to say it's the best film of the year and deserving of, of an award, but I don't think it's a bad movie. I actually like both the movies, A Few Good Men and... Few Good Men has has Sorkin schmaltz, you know, mm-hmm. at times, but it's a good movie. Good know? script and good, a lot of good Oscar scenes in that, a lot of good Oscar moments in that movie. And that's why it usually is enough to really be a hook in order to to carry a movie through. Well, I will say one more thing about, about A Few Good Men, though. I mentioned this before a couple of times. You know, in the past, all of the studios have sort of take, taken turns winning Best Picture, Paramount, Columbia, um, Warners, it, it, it was swap around. Every decade, they all get their fair share. But in 1991 was the year that Sony Pictures bought Columbia and moved onto the MGM lot, remodeled the entire MGM lot, redesigned it, and took over. And, and this was a foreign a foreign company coming in and taking over an American studio. And Columbia had previously won for Kramer versus Kramer and Gandhi. So they had been... It had a good record in the previous decade, but since 1992, as soon as Sony Pictures bought Columbia, they haven't won a Best Picture um, since any year in, in, in the past um, 21 years. They've not won Best Picture. Wow. 
And it, and it, it made and, and I, you would think that it wouldn't make such a big difference. But another movie that we'll talk about later on, the player in the first five minutes of the player, they make they poke fun at Sony. You know, when they're when they they have the Japanese people cheering a lot, and and uh, um, the guy uh, he says, you know, domo arigato for the Sony Sony products. We use all the Sony products. They put they get a dig into the player in the first five minutes of that movie. So that was it was it was there was a grudge against Sony around town that year. And I don't know that the Hollywood is still over it completely. Right, right. And it's sort of like they would say, you know, oh, what studio is that? Sony? Oh, Sony. Oh, well, I'm not going to mm-hmm. buy that. It seems as if, I mean, Sony and Columbia, they've had some really good uh, candidates over the years. The last one was the social network. But it just seems like they cannot catch a break. They can't win Best Picture. Uh, haven't for two decades. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. Um a Few Good Men was, I don't know if it was originally written for a man in the part of Joe, Joanne, played by Demi Moore, but I do know that a lot of the, a lot of the whispering behind the scenes was Demi Moore made a lot of demands, and I sort of feel like um, if they wanted to win Best Picture, they couldn't have Demi Moore in the movie, because she really was never respected in Hollywood. No matter what she did, she was never respected. And the fact alone that she was in that movie, which is sad to think that a woman could, could do that to a film, but, you know, if you lived through the Demi Moore era, you remember what it was like, you know? I don't... What, what, was, her, what was the problem? Why did they... What, what did they have against her? She was... Uh, she considered like a rom-com type of person. She was or? well. First, she was a brat packer, but okay. then she kind of like got fake boobs and did a lot of physical stuff. Like she, she you know, she was kind of known for her body and her fitness, and you know, her her boyfriends, and you know, she was a paparazzi. Uh, I'm trying to think of somebody today who who would be the equivalent. Um, not quite Lindsay Lohan, but more like sort of on the level of Kim Kardashian if Kim Kardashian started making interesting movies kind of that type of deal mm-hmm. um, you know she just she didn't have a lot of respect it took her a while and she made a lot of good movies and she worked really hard to earn that respect but she never quite got it and I always felt like it hurt a few good men's Oscar chances that, that she, was, she was in the movie at all because otherwise you had Jack Nicholson, Tom Cruise and a lot of really great supporting actors um, and then you just had Demi Moore, and I remember at the time a lot of people making fun of her. In that she's. I, I would like to be able to defend her because I like her as she seems like a decent human being, and she's been good in some things. But I didn't think she was very good in that. In, in that, um, Sorkin screenplays have a certain a certain rhythm to them. They're sort of like they're all, they're not quite as stylized as a Coen Brothers screenplay, but they are similar in that they 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 sort of speak their own language and it's clear that most of the actors in the film sort of get that and they go along with it. But her her line readings just stand out as being awkward and weird to me. Carl, I do have to ask you a couple of questions about September 6th. Shoot. On the morning of the 6th, you were contacted by an NIS agent who said that Santiago had tipped him off to an illegal fence line shooting. Yes. Santiago is going to reveal the person's name in exchange for a transfer. Yes. If you feel there are any details that I'm missing, you should feel free to speak up. Thank you. Now, at this point, you call Lieutenant Colonel Markinson and Lieutenant Kendrick into your office. Is that right? Yes. What happened then? We agreed that for his own safety, Santiago should be transferred off the base. 
Santiago is set to be transferred. On the first available flight to the States, 0600 the next morning. Five hours too late, as it turned out. Yeah. All right, that's all I have. Thanks very much for your time. The corporal's waiting outside with a jeep for you. He'll take you back to the flight line. Thank you, sir. Wait a minute, I've got some questions. No, you don't. Yes, I do. No, you don't. Colonel, on the morning that Santiago died, did you meet with Dr. Stone between 3 and 5? Joe. Of course I met with the doctor. But one of my men was dead. See? The man was dead. Let's go. I'm just wondering if you've ever heard the term code red. I've heard the term, yes. This past February, Colonel, you received a cautionary memo from the Commander-in-Chief of the Atlantic Fleet warning that the practice of enlisted men disciplining their own wasn't to be condoned by officers. Well, I submit to you that whoever wrote that memo has never faced the working end of a Soviet-made Cuban AK-47 assault rifle. However, the directive having come from the commander, I gave it its due attention. What is your point, Joe? She has no point. She often has no point, sir. It's part of her charm. We're out of here. Thank you. My point is that I think Code Red still go on down here. Do Code Red still happen on this base, Colonel? Joe, the Colonel doesn't need to answer that. Yes, he does. No, he really doesn't. Yeah, he really does. Colonel. You know, it just hit me. She outranks you, Danny. Yes, sir. I want to tell you something, and listen up, because I really mean this. You're the luckiest man in the world. There is nothing on this earth sexier, believe me, gentlemen, than a woman that you have to salute in the morning. Promote them all, I say, because this is true. If you haven't gotten a blowjob from a superior officer, well, you're just letting the best in life pass you by. Colonel, the practice of code reds is still condemned by officers on this My problem is I'm a colonel, so I'll just have to go on taking cold showers until they elect some gal president. <laughs> I need an answer to my question, sir. Take caution in your tone, Commander. I'm a fair guy, but this fucking heat is making me absolutely crazy. You want to ask me about code reds on the record, I tell you I discourage the practice in accordance with the commander's directive off the record. I tell you it is an invaluable part of close infantry training, and if it happens to go on without my knowledge, so be it. I run my unit how I run my unit. You want to investigate me, roll the dice and take your chances. I eat breakfast 300 yards from 4,000 Cubans who are trained to kill me, so don't think for one second that you can come down here, flash a badge, and make me nervous. Let's go. Colonel, I just need a copy of Santiago's transfer order. What's that? Santiago's transfer. You guys have paperwork on that kind of thing. I, I just need it for the file. For the file? Yeah. Of course, you can have a copy of the transfer order for the file, Danny. I'm here to help in any way I can. Thank you. You believe that, don't you, Danny, that I'm here to help you in any way I can? Of course. Corporal will take you by personnel on your way out to the flight line and... You can have all the transfer orders that you want. But you have to ask me nicely. 
I beg your pardon? You have to ask me nicely. You see, Danny, I can deal with the bullets and the bombs and the blood. I don't want money and I don't want medals. What I do want is for you to stand there in that faggoty white uniform and with your Harvard mouth extend me some fucking courtesy. You gotta ask me nicely. Colonel Jessup, if it's not too much trouble, I'd like a copy of the transfer order. Sir. No problem. Yeah. Mm. She, it's like she doesn't, she doesn't, she doesn't feel the humor of them when she's reading them. You know what I mean? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think I think I think she's a huge liability, and I'd say that un- I say that sadly because I don't dislike her, but I think another actress, even somebody who is dismissed as kind of a cupcake, like say I think Meg Ryan could have pulled it off. Maybe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see that. That would have been a good. That would be good casting. It's interesting about a few good men too. Even though it was nominated for best picture, it didn't get a best director nomination, and it didn't get a best screenplay nomination. In spite of Sorkin, and so that so that you know you're in trouble right there. If you're right. if you're if you have your best picture nominee and you're not nominated for best director or best screenplay, that's surprising bad. about the screenplay, especially. It is. That's really bad. I don't know why people didn't like it that much. I mean, I watch it, you know, and um, it's all to me. It's all about Jack Nicholson. The whole movie is about him. But yeah. I can't imagine it not getting a screenplay nomination. That's that's crazy. I know, uh, and it wasn't even as if there were the, the competition was that that was that heavy. The what, it was an original screenplay. It would have been right. No, adapted. It was adapted from his okay. own play. Okay, right. Uh, the other adapted screenplays. There was Enchanted April that got nominated. Oh God. And and uh, a river runs through it, which is a good movie. And Scent of a Woman. Eh? And uh, and Howard's End. Um, so you know, it's not 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 like this competition was that stiff. That's wild. That is wild. The scent of a woman got in, and, and um, a few women Enchan- didn't. And Enchanted April. My God, <laughs> Enchanted April got in for best. Well, I, th- <laughs> I sort of think there was a little bit of a smear going on with Sorkin, because in here, uh, I have a quote here. It says, um, um, because, you know, when you're reading back of these Oscar years, this, this doesn't seem to be the case anymore today. But back then, the money was everything. How much a movie made and how much it cost were big deals. And we'll, we'll talk about that later with Malcolm X. But um, but A Few Good Men actually made a lot of money. So it is it is surprising that it didn't do better at the Oscars because you would think that they would bow down to the money. Yeah, um, looking at the money, it made $236 million. Is that Can that be right? I guess it is, huh? But it says, being in Hollywood was a completely new experience for Sorkin, who admitted to the Los Angeles Times that he wasn't part of the scene, quote-unquote. But don't get me wrong, I'm absolutely the sort of person who would love to go to their parties. I find the money and level of attention very seductive. I'm materialistic, and I'd love to drive a Porsche. <laughs> That's what <Aaron> Sorkin <laughs> said. So I sort of feel like there's a chance that maybe, you know, he kind of got a little bit of an arrogant smear during that time, you know? What else was he doing at the time? What was he known for? Had he done? Was he in? Was uh, when was the West Wing? That came later, didn't? Oh, it? much later. Yeah, this is his... after American President too, which was. Mm-hmm. I think he he started. Well, I think the combination of a few good men and American President sort of put him on Hollywood's map. But right and then around he, this, then he became TV guy. I think he was mm-hmm. he was drugged out during this period. I think this is before he got sober. 
he kind of goes a little nuts here, and then he and then he sobers up, and then he starts becoming a really good writer. But according but I, to IMDb, A Few Good Men was his first produced screenplay. That was that was the very first time he'd ever been uh, had a, had a screenplay produced. Yeah. So mm-hmm. yeah, so that's he, was, he hit yeah. his success pretty early with A Few Good Men on Broadway, even though it didn't get very good reviews apparently. But something mm-hmm. you know, he was he was the great big discovered thing. But mm-hmm. he he pretty much almost derailed his career with drugs, and then um, being so outspoken and being not afraid to say what he was thinking and rubbing people the wrong way. Yeah, I think with a few good men, in order to care about that movie, you really had to care about Tom Cruise's character, and you had to care about his ethical spine, you know. And and there isn't any sort of higher. Thing it's kind of anti-military, anti-marine, um, pro-justice, you know, kind of in that Aaron Sorkin way of pro-justice. Whereas Scent of a Woman is more like um, emotional. You know, he's 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 a poor kid and he gets defended in the in that great last scene. You know, where Al Pacino says, "You're building a rat ship here." You know, that whole scene is so great, and you know, your movie has to end well. You know, so what happens in A Few Good Men, they catch they catch Jack Nicholson out for, he admits it finally and he goes to jail, you know, okay, big deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead of a woman, it's more like, you know, um, Al Pacino comes in, stands up for what's right, and the, and the rich people get, you know, they have to eat shit. And mm-hmm. so that's pretty but, satisfying. The, in A Few Good Men, the good men win, but you don't really care the, about the good men that much. You know, you're not that interested in the, the more fascinating characters in A Few Good Men are the corrupt ones. Right, and even though it's satisfying, it's good to see the corrupt ones get their just uh, get meet justice. Um, when the good guys win, and you don't care about the good guys all that much anyway, it, it, you know, it leaves you empty. And you have to sit through all that stuff with Demi Moore propping up um, Tom Cruise, you know, for him to finally realize how great he is. <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> yawn, but. Um, so the other thing that happened that year that was pretty big deal was Emma Thompson sort of burst through with Howard's End, and she literally won every award in sight. People fell madly in love with her right away, and, you know, she was a star. A star is born with, with Emma Thompson. I kind of look at that Oscar, and I think, yeah, really? You know, like, <laughs> I think she's great, and I love her. I'm her biggest fan, but I, I just think she's done better work than Howard's End. She's great in Remains of the Day, for instance, you know. Mm-hmm. Um but she won the Oscar pretty easily. She's so charming, and everything she said, you know, in all the publicity tour was fantastic. Um, Relatively weak year for Best Actress. Yeah. Uh, compared to years that we talked about just recently, um, to, to the, the actresses, you can name the movies, and it's hard to even think of who was in them. Indochine, Indochine Passion Fish, Love Field, Lorenzo's Oil. Who was in those movies? I mean, you know Susan Sarandon, but, but uh, I haven't even seen Love Field, so I don't know. Yeah, it's not a very good uh, movie, but it's an interesting kind of civil rights era movie. The big glaring omissions for 1992 are The Player and Malcolm X, I think, in my opinion, that they're both Malcolm X. I mean, should we talk about Malcolm X now or should we talk about The Player? <laughs> Malcolm X is a either, big one. Either one. At least The Player was nominated. It no, wasn't. it wasn't. No. It wasn't even nominated for Best Picture, but got mm-hmm. a Best Director nomination. I guess uh, Altman took Rob Reiner's slot for Best Director, right? Right. 
Mm -hmm. Right. Which is a good thing, but it's not enough because the player is one of the outstanding movies, not only of that year, but one of the outstanding movies of the 90s and one of the best movies about Hollywood ever made. Ever made. And it's funny how Hollywood likes movies about them, except when they're na portrayed in a negative light, which they do in, <laughs> in the player. Um, the player is, you know, considered probably um, Robert Altman's most genre-y movie, I'd say, you know, of all of his um of all of his wonderful films, the player to me is is ironically the most genre-y because it's it's about that. You know, it's about Hollywood tropes, and it really fits nicely into those Hollywood tropes in the way that it's designed. It's so cleverly filmed and written and cast and executed. It's just features an absolutely brilliant central performance by Tim Robbins as Griffin Mill, a cold son of a bitch, you know, who murders a screenwriter and then gets away with it. <laughs> He's just, you know, hunted down by his com competition, Larry Levy, played by Peter Gallagher. Have you ever been to Japan? Yes, uh, I was uh, there once on a location scout with Steven Spielberg. I lived there for a year, student year abroad. Right. You know, I, w I wish I had done that. Well, I think about it a lot. Never forget it. You should write about it. I did. Don't you remember? What? I got my idea about the American student who goes to Japan. That was my pitch, the one you were supposed to get back to me on. You don't remember, do you? Of course I remember. You never got back to me. Listen, I was an asshole, all right? <laughs> it comes with the job. I'm sorry, I really am. I know how angry you must have been. I'll make it up to you. That's what I'm here for. I'm going to give you a deal, David. I'm not going to guarantee I'm going to make the movie, but I am going to give you a shot. Let's just um, stop all the postcard shit, right? I'm here to say that I would like to start over. Friends. Fuck you, Mel. You're a liar. You're stepping over the line, David. You didn't come out here to see the bicycle thief. Came in five minutes before the picture ended. Nearly tripped over my feet. What'd you do? Call my house? Huh? Did you speak to the ice cream? You like her, Mill. Just a lot like you. All heart. You're on my list, pal. Nothing's gonna change that. See you in the next real asshole.
It's a nice boat you got there, movie exec. It's me, the writer. Still want to buy my story? I told you I'd give you a deal. Stop by the studio first thing in the morning. We'll work something out. Oh, and who will I ask for? Larry Levy? What's Larry Levy got to do with this? How do you know about Larry Levy? Don't you read the trades? New York Times business section? He's moving in, you're moving out. You can't make a deal. That's what they say. Yesterday's news. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Can I borrow your mobile phone? Huh? Uh, Larry Levy. Yeah, Larry. David Kahane here. Listen, Larry, guess who's making promises about getting pictures made to writers in parking lots? Guess what dumb son of a bitch executive is trying to take advantage of, of me? I mean, do you realize how unstoppable this guy is? You know, I cannot wait to tell the world that when Griffin Mill can't cut the pressure at work, he drives out to Pasadena to pick fights with writers. You tell Larry Levy to give me a call. You know, the word is out that he's going to start making meaningful pictures at the studio for a change. Let's, let's forget this. Let's just stop all the postcard shit. I don't I write postcards. I write both wrong, okay? No, you're wrong, buddy. You're in over your head. That's why you're losing your job. And then what are you going to do? can write. What can you do? I said, let's forget this. totally paranoid about larry levy and he's always like obsessed with different kinds of water glasses you know he has to have the exact right glass uh, this is a water glass can i have my wine and wine glass that kind of thing you know mm. and everything about robert altman's movies that were a little bit raw up until now becomes off really polished in, a, in the player all of his overlapping dialogue it overlaps seamlessly and, and meshes together like like a like a like a like a really well-made watch, all of his uh, multiple characters and the multiple point of views and, and people coming in out of frame and all the improvisational um, things that he used in his films that seemed a little bit rough around the edges in, in previous movies. Even even a movie like Nashville is a little bit raw feeling, which was exciting, but it, it, it didn't have the, the uh, gloss that the player has. Right. Yeah, they're not the same kind of Paul. It all came together so well for the player. They said when they were watching dailies that they knew that magic was happening. And the word started to get around Hollywood that Altman, this was, this was like his third comeback. You know, he kept he kept uh, making great movies, and then he would fade away for a few years and then to make another comeback. Once word started getting around Hollywood, how, how the player was coming together so brilliantly, he started being approached by people who wanted to do cameos for free, just wanted to come on and, and do walk-ons. And so that's how he got so many great, you know, cameo roles in this movie. People just heard about it, and they wanted to be part of it. No kidding. So some of those cameos are hilariously um, Julia Roberts, who was his friend mm -hmm. anyway, I think. Mm -hmm. Lyle Lovett, who was her husband at the time. Um, 
Andy McDowell, I remember she's one of the stars that that come in. You know, John Cusack's there. He's friends with um, uh, he's friends with Tim Robbins. Um, you know, because there are always some sleazy guy making some reference to one of the stars. <laughs> and it's about, it's, it's about, um, you know, a film project trying to get off the ground, you know, which is supposedly going to have no stars, you know, no stars. And then he says, Julia Roberts, <laughs> no stars. Well, from the very <laughs> beginning. I mean, and we've talked about it the past couple of episodes, how, how Julia Roberts was the hot thing in Hollywood. She, yeah. had, she was the only uh, female star who was making the kind of money that she was making. She was the only really bankable uh, female star, and they mentioned her so many times in the first five minutes of that movie. Every movie they pitch, it's like a Julia Roberts type. Let's get <laughs> Julia Roberts for that role. You know, they wanted to cast her in everything. And you know the the style that um, is employed by like The Office or you know some of the or even Veep. You know where where you just hear these like throwaway lines in the background that are so funny. That's that's so great in the player. It's all through it. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of the funniest lines are just said as an aside by somebody walking by you know you have to really pay attention to it to hear well, and just if- like from the very beginning i'm sorry but i just want to say we remind people about mash when when ring lardner won the oscar for mash it was a great thing for him but when he went to the dailies when he went to see the dailies for mash he was furious because nothing that he had written was up on screen yeah. because because robert altman would give people the script and he would say no this is your character you can you can identify who you're playing but just throw the script away because you can just say whatever you want when you're on camera oh, and so so much of what was in mash was just improvised and the same thing happened with michael tolkien who wrote um the player, he would go to dailies and he was furious that none of the, he didn't recognize any of the dialogue. He hadn't written any of that stuff. Like one day, Peter Gallagher was just hanging around. He had already filmed his scenes and Robert Altman says, hey, Gallagher, get over here. I need you to walk into this scene. I need you to walk through and say something. And Gallagher says, like, what? And he says, whatever comes to your mind. You know? <laughs> and that's how they filmed the movie. And they wow. would do they would do some rehearsals and run through, but it was really like improv. And that's the way Altman liked to work. And... Uh, but and sorry, I had to go off on a tangent like that's that. So but that's so interesting. Uh, that's one of the things about this, that all of all, Altman's films that I really like is he gives the actors freedoms, freedom to create their characters like that. Wow. And we have to say about the opening scene, one of the famous long takes. Mm-hmm. You know, when when um, when they talk about all the best long takes in film history, the player always comes up with that wonderful shot of coming into Columbia Studios and mm-hmm. you know moving around and hearing the pitch and with Buck Henry. Um, mm-hmm. Talking about the graduate too, <laughs> the graduate too. That's such a great scene. Um, Camera roams all over the place, and we're introduced to about twelve or twenty major characters in the opening shot, which last I timed it out because I watched the beginning again. It times out for over eight minutes. It's an yeah. eight-minute long take, and it's choreographed really well. People, it looks and it looks really casual and spontaneous. But Robert Altman's son says that Robert Altman came to him and says. Can you build me a little tiny set, a little model of the set, complete with a with a camera crane and everything that I can play with? So he worked all of that out wow. way in advance. And he and Robert Altman's son built him this little model of the set. And he said that his dad uh, played with it like a Tonka toy for two or three days before they filmed that opening scene. No that kidding. was the first. Yeah, it's amazing. I loved I love stories like that. It was the first scene that they filmed in the movie too. So it gave everyone such a sense of of. Uh, Playing this game almost, and gave them a, such a such a good working rapport with each other to for everyone to meet the first. Year. It, it, I mean, you know, it really gave them a good um, ensemble uh, feeling to work together like that, and it makes it have that as the very first scene that they filmed. Wow, that's so great. 
Yeah, it, it, it is one of the best, um, one of the best scenes, and, and that's when we're first introduced to Griffin, and and as the plot sort of unfolds, you know, he becomes more and more, you know, sort of evil and desperate to remain in power. And he he kills the screenwriter and takes his girlfriend, who's <laughs> Greta Skaki, who plays this, the Ice Queen, you know, um, in one of her best performances. She's funny. I mean, it's just a small part, but it's it's still a funny part. And everybody said at the time that Allman was so was so good at what he did that he showed the girl naked that you didn't want to see naked, and then didn't show the girl that you did want to see naked, which is Greta Skaki. Um, you know, just just to play with you. Like he he shows the one girl, the girlfriend naked, but then doesn't show Greta Skaki naked. The well, you know why? She was pregnant for one thing. She was pregnant, and she was self conscious that she thought her breasts were too big, and so that was they they had to only film their, from the neck up, and so it was out of necessity that he had to do that. But he told Tim Robbins, "We're going to make this the sexiest." scene that only shows people's faces that has ever been put on film isn't that funny and it really is sexy it really is sexy and it comes through but he but it was because they couldn't film her below the waist because she was showing that she was pregnant i know but can you imagine in any any real universe anybody saying greta Skocky's boobs were too big <laughs> to be i know really well it's her own I mean, it was her own feeling she was self-conscious about no i know it's, it's just not, funny to think that because god if there's one thing she's known for it's having great tits <laughs> Yeah, right. So. I know. Where <laughs> she was when she was young. What a beautiful woman she was. Absolutely. She was young. Another one thing uh, I, I had some, I've known a lot of anecdotes about um, about the player and about a lot of Altman films because there's a great uh, there's a great bi- biography about Altman. You see what is the name of it? It's called Robert Altman. An oral biography where it's nothing but they interview like two or three hundred people who've worked with them over the years. And it's all the, the entire biography is constructed of, of, of people telling stories about when they worked on his movies. And there's no interconnecting tissue. There's nothing. There's no prose connecting any of these stories. It's just one anecdote after another. And it flows together so seamlessly. It's like one of his movies. The, 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 the book is, is structured like his films, where you have all of these different points of view telling these stories. And so some of these stories I'm telling are things that I read from, in that book. Anyone interested at all must check it out, try to get a copy. Yeah. But um, they were stoned all the time making this movie. Tim oh. Robbins said the first day that he went in to do the first reading with Robert Altman, it was just him and Altman, and they got stoned and were making stuff up uh, about um, how they were going, uh, what, how the character was going to develop. And it, the, the, the way that the movie ends, um, Altman was not satisfied with the, with the script, the way the movie had um, was written in the script, and so he called Tim Robbins and he said, "We got to do something about the, the ending." And, and, and Tim Robbins said they sat around and got stoned. <laughs> and and R- Tim Robbins had the idea. He said, "Well, how did Mash end?" I can't remember what was it. Mash had such a great ending. And Robert Altman said, "Well, Radar comes on the, the loudspeaker and he says this has been a film directed by Robert Altman." And so it, it inspired Tim Robbins to say, "Well, why don't we do that at the very end? Say, have someone come and pitch the movie that they've just seen." Oh wow. And so that was Tim Robbins' idea, and, and so Robert Altman jumps up and he says, "Whoa!" He says, "I'm not giving you credit for this. I'm not giving you credit for this ending. I'm going to take credit, all the credit for this." Oh, that's but so it was funny. it was a stoner thing. It's something that came up. When they were stoned. Oh my God, that's funny. I'll have to watch the ending with that in mind. Yeah. But what a great it, movie! It seems. It, I know it seems like it's such an. It's so well integrated into the way that the movie has been set up, especially the way that it began. That it seems like it had to have been planned like that all along but it was a spontaneous stoner thing that they came up with oh my god there's so many spontaneous things in that movie that you just wouldn't know about unless you read about it but it's funny 
Um, yeah, uh, I, I sort of feel like it's it's the kind of thing that you know is really you know really kind of foretold how Hollywood would what direction Hollywood would go in because in that movie they're really heavy on the focus groups which is now the big deal obviously with Hollywood you mm-hmm. know everything has to be tested and retested and you know PG and you know have everything just totally predictable for the audience or else it doesn't get made um and this was it's amazing how of the moment it is in its satire and how that's only gotten stronger and it's gotten older. It's similar to me to, um, and it's, and it's level of satire to be uh, similar to Dr. Strangelove in terms of an absolute reflection of its time and place. And yet sort of forward thinking at the same time. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. It was I, of all the times I've seen the player, it was only this week when I rewatched it that I picked up on the Sony reference, and because I've only, you know, I've been kind of harping on the Sony thing that Sony took over Columbia the year before. That they they insert that into the movie and take a jab at Sony, and I never noticed that before because I didn't know that about Hollywood history until just recently. So they the movie must be implanted all kinds of things like that. That that if unless you really a lot of insider stuff is what I mean. You know that probably a lot of Hollywood people picked up on at the time that. That that may fly right over most people's heads. Yeah, I really love how kind of corrupt they portray Hollywood. You know, not a lot of movies mm. really have the balls to go there. I feel like the player really did, and especially that new kind of Hollywood that seems like they really run the show now. That Griffin Mill really does kind of rule Hollywood these days. That sort of mentality. You know, he's so dumb and he surrounds himself with such dumb people and their choices are so dumb and all the really smart people get fired or murdered, you know, and the dumb people prevail. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, it's just, it was such a great um, premonition film and and I, I really feel like people should watch it now more than they do. I don't think it's, I don't think it's as much of a um, cult hit as it should be the player I feel like I'm always having to remind people about it and that not enough people really get why it's so good and you can really drill down that movie and find so many so many so much symbolism in the in the characters the women what the women represent you know mm-hmm. but the best scene of course is my favorite scene is the murder scene where Griffin Mill actually beats that guy. <laughs> you know, keep it to yourself. Mm-hmm. And he kills him, and then he covers up his tracks, and it sets the whole thing in motion. Um, it's great. It's probably, I would say, it's probably next to McCabe and Mrs. Miller. It's probably probably my very favorite Robert Altman movie, and maybe Nashville would be third. You know, so that's how much I admire and respect and love the player. It's right. It's of all of all Robert Altman's fantastic movies. It's it's right up there in the top two. Oh, for sure. McCabe and Mrs. Miller is so great too. Mm-hmm. At uh, on Oscar night, uh, Robert Altman was pretty sure by by Oscar night that he wasn't going to win, and he didn't even really want to go. So here's one more stoner story. His wife in this in the bi- biography, Catherine, his wife Catherine says that she baked up some. Uh, some pot brownies and crumbled them up into nut-sized pieces and they carried them along to the Oscars in a, in a Ziploc bag and they were going to indulge in them after the Oscars when they went to the parties and stuff but they decided when they were sitting there that they would just go ahead and, and start, start munching on them during the Oscars and they were, they were sitting in the front row 
They were sitting in the very front row of the Oscars, and they were munching on chunks of pot brownies. This is Robert Altman's wife saying this. I'm not making this up, you know. And so they were sort of mellow at the beginning. Every time that they kept having to, like, move their feet when Clint would have to get up and accept another award. But by the end of it, when he was accepting Best Picture and Best Director, they were, like, wild. They were like, go, Clint, go, Clint, because they were stoned out of their gourd. Oh, God, that's so funny. Sitting in the front row of the Oscars. (laughs) (laughs) And Clint Eastwood rules the day you know Clint Eastwood walks into the room you know he's going to win the fucking Oscar absolutely right so we should talk a little bit about Malcolm X um, Spike Lee's Malcolm X which I just just watched I couldn't watch the whole thing because it's three hours long but I was watching it and you know Spike Lee it was really originally going to be made by Barry Levinson and, and Spike Lee kind of kicked up a you know, a bit of a fuss and said that... Uh, uh, and Sidney Lumet, I think, was also looking at it. Sidney Lumet. Norman Jewison, too. Norman oh, Jewison. Yeah, that's right. You're Norman Jewison. You're right, Norman Greg. Jewison. I think, yeah, you're yeah. Abs- you're the one who's right, and Sasha and I may be a little bit off. We're wrong. It was Norman yeah. Jewison, and, and Spike Lee said, and, you know, a white man should not direct this movie. And, and then he got it. And then once he got it, it was sort of like one bit of trouble after another. They didn't have enough money to finish it. The studio wouldn't give him any more money. He had to ask his rich friends, Oprah and, and various other entertainment people, to... Um, uh, I think what happened, part of it was that the bond company that put up the movie for the... That put up the money, the, the backing, the insurance money for the movie had stipulated that the movie couldn't be longer than 2 hours and 15 minutes. And that was a lot shorter than than uh, Spike Lee had in mind. He knew that he couldn't cut it down that far. Mm. So once word about that got out, the Bond people froze it. It got frozen in post-production so that work stopped on it because they, they were at an impasse. They couldn't reach an agreement about how long to make it. And so that's when people like, like Oprah and Michael Jordan and Bunch of really powerful, wealthy um, people, uh, black people in America, chipped in and gave him the money to finish it the way he wanted to, so he could bypass the insurance company. Oh, I see. Okay, so then when that happened, word got around that he was asking for handouts, and um, the studio then coughed up some money to help him finish um, editing and finish the movie. Um, but the thing about Spike Lee at the time was he kept saying stuff like this quote, where he says. Um, uh, when he was worried about the marketing of the movie, he's like, let's be honest, he said to Premier, Hollywood is predominantly Jewish, and they all think, and all they think is that Malcolm X was anti-Semitic and hated white people and was a bigot. People who believe that, how are they going to effectively sell the movie? He kept kind of coming out and saying, Hollywood's Jewish, and the Oscars are Jewish, and they're never going to go for, for this movie or me. But it wasn't just... It wasn't just that part of, of it that was causing controversy. The, some people in the black community were saying that Spike Lee was a spoiled, rich, um, elitist who had no business making this movie. Um, and they were kind of coming out and attacking him for being a rich, you know, one percenter, basically, who was trying to tell this story. And then they had another huge controversy with the Malcolm X hats, where all of a sudden it became really popular to wear a hat with an X on it. And everybody started complaining about that. And the black community leaders it commercialized it too much. Commercialized against, right? him. Yeah. Because Malcolm I think X. that Malcolm, the disciples of Malcolm X um, in the Muslim community, 
uh, really resented. The, that's probably they probably uh, Spike Lee was probably correct that, that a lot of Jewish people were probably felt ambivalent about a movie that that turned a, a Muslim guy uh, into a into the hero it, that had never been done before, to my knowledge, in a, a movie that was so high profile. Right. It probably didn't make a lot of people uncomfortable, but he shouldn't have spoken out in, about it in the way that he did because he was shooting himself in the foot. Right. Well, it's, it's unfortunate that he singled out Jewish people for having a problem with him. When the fact is, it's white people that have a problem with Malcolm X. He scares the shit out of them because right. he's a militant black man. Mm. If this mm. ends into in his own way, so is Spike Lee. He's not throwing bombs, but he's throwing cultural bombs, and he scares people. If this movie had been directed by Norman Jewison, and if it had been about Martin Luther King instead of Malcolm X, it would have. I think it would have been Gandhi at the Oscars. It would have, it would have, it would have been huge. But because it was a subject matter that scares people from a director that scares people who isn't going to play political nice. He's not. He's not. Spike Lee isn't trying to make people feel better. He's trying to challenge people, and that kind of thing is never going to go over well with Oscar. I must emphasize at the outstart that the Honorable Elijah Muhammad is not a politician. That's right. So I'm not here this afternoon as a Republican nor as a Democrat, not as a Mason, nor as an Elk, not as a Protestant, nor a Catholic, not as a Christian, nor a Jew, not as a Baptist, nor a Methodist, in fact, not even as an American, because if I was an American, the problem that confronts our people today wouldn't even exist. Now we ain't Americans, huh? So I have to stand here today as what I was when I was born, a black man. Before there was any such thing as a Republican or a Democrat, we were black. Before there was any such thing as a Mason or an Elk, we were black. Before there was any such thing as a Jew or a Christian, we were black people. In fact, before there was any such place as America, we were black. And after America has long passed from the scene, there will still be black people. I'm going to tell you like it really is. Every election year, these politicians are sent up here to pacify. They're sent here and set up here by the white man. This is what they do. They send drugs in Harlem down here to pacify us. They send alcohol down here to pacify us. They send prostitution down here to pacify us. Why, you can't even get drugs in Harlem without the white man's permission. You can't get prostitution in Harlem without the white man's permission. You can't get gambling in Harlem without the white man's permission. Every time you break the seal on that liquor bottle, that's a government seal you're breaking. Oh, I say it, I say it again, you've been had. You've been took. You've been hoodwinked. Bamboozled. Let astray. Run amok. This is what he does. No, that's true. And the fact that if it had been directed by Norman Jewison, I think that given the the way that um, the movie is, which is a fairly conventional bio, biopic, um, that yeah, it not only would it have been Gandhi, but I also think that they would have they would have really toned down the Muslim part of it. 
They would have mm-hmm. toned down the militantism, the, especially the Muslim, which when you're watching it now, which I have to say, there are some moments in that are, that are just, just like watching Do the Right Thing now. After all the sort of safe movies we see these days, the kind of really well-executed PG-13, typical Oscar movies that are made today, tight, you know, efficient there's something so fucking beautiful about Malcolm X, especially the first half. There's this one shot where Malcolm X just goes to prison and the light is closing on the prison door and he's inside. And first, all you see is like a lit match in this room. And he's saying, you know, Jesus isn't helping me or something like that. And and then the lights, the doors start to open a little bit and it's just this blue butterfly light coming out. And then the doors shut, and it's just the lights dim. It's so beautiful that that whole bit, and the whole first part of it. I mean, once he turns into the Malcolm X, you know, I think the movie starts to become a little hard to follow, like hard to care as much, especially in post nine eleven world. It has to be said. No, mm, no, I disagree. No, I, no I like the combination to... of the two, uh, I, I, and I think a lot of people were critical of it for. In fact, the parts of the black community were critical of it for spending too much time on his pre-Muslim life. And I, the, to me, what's brilliant about it is the combination of the two and his transition from one thing to another. Yeah, I really liked the pre-Muslim life. I haven't finished watching it all the way, but the the um, pre his life as the young Malcolm X, you know, dyeing his hair and dating white women and, you know, how he gets into prison and all that is, it's interesting. Yes. It does spend a little bit too much time on it maybe. And it is sort of sad to see white women, you know, um, kind of given that kind of, uh, blame, you know, like they're evil. Don't you, you know, don't, don't date or want or lust after white women because that, that will be Mm. to your ruin. You know, that's that's a pretty specific point of, of the movie. Mm. He's not very sympathetic at all to white women. And that in fact is an ongoing problem in Spike Lee's work. And a lot of people who like Spike Lee and are fans of Spike Lee note that I believe, and this should be fact checked, but I think that Spike Lee's dad left his mother for a white woman. And I think it always kind of burned in him a little bit. And it's, it's definitely evident in a lot of his movies following Malcolm X, but it's very strong in Malcolm X. And while I understand what he's coming from, where he's coming from, it's a little bit hard to watch sometimes that, you know, it's such an evil thing. Although I do understand this idea of, you know, how black men are raised and and in America, there is only one beauty standard and that's the blonde and blue eyed woman, Mm. you know, if that, and I'm not an, I'm not enough of an expert on Malcolm X's life to know how much of that is factual, but I do imagine that it was very true that probably the people who associated with Malcolm X probably did really strongly feel that way. That if you're going to be a representative of the black community, it's not a good thing to if you if you if you if you choose a partner outside the black community. He probably had a lot of actual definitely. So it would be it would be difficult to leave that out of the movie, to leave that antagonism out of the movie, and and um and, and be realistic to right. be truthful uh, we should mention that to talk about the cinematography it's ernest dickerson the same guy who shot uh, we were talking about who did such an incredible job with do the right thing who's mm-hmm. now a director in his own right ernest kid ernest, ernest dickerson yeah what a beautifully shot movie malcolm x is mm-hmm. what did you think of it overall craig I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. It's unfortunate that it was held down because of uh, stupid controversies that don't really don't really mean anything anymore. But I think the movie itself 
like I said, if it, if it were Norman Jewison and the subject were different, it would have been none of these controversies would have come up. It would have been it would have been embraced and beloved, and as well it should be because it's an excellent movie. I like Do the Right Thing better. I think this one suffers a little bit from the the epic biography syndrome that most movies of that nature do. Um, and I love Do the Right Thing the, the way that it. Uh, I, we sort of talked about it at the time that we talked about the film. The way it, it sort of deals with the tension between Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. And I think what is F. Scott Fitzgerald said something about uh, uh, the science of intelligence is being able to hold two opposed ideas in your mind time. And that's what he does with Do the Right Thing. And this one is more, obviously, it favors Malcolm X more. So it's it's a less, it's a little less challenging of a picture, but it's 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 fantastic. It, it's it, it makes me mad to see movies that did get nominated for Best Picture when this one didn't. I'm, I'm fine with Unforgiven having won, but it, Malcolm X deserved to be up there. It would have been a pretty brave Academy to nominate um, Spike Lee. It only ended up with Costume and Best Actor. God, Denzel Washington is fucking fantastic. I don't know how he didn't win that fucking part for that. He's Can you great. believe at the time people were waiting because he was too dark and too short to be Malcolm X? It's like, come on. Don't you Black, it was, acting is acting is playing something that you're not, and it doesn't matter if you don't look exactly physically like the character you're playing. He he captured the the, the speech and the personality and, and everything that we know of of him brilliantly. That might have must have really hurt at the time for Denzel Washington and for Spike Lee to have put their heart and soul into something that really did amount to greatness. But especially Denzel Washington watching that, that's like a Robert De Niro Raging Bull kind of performance. I mean, that is really, really mm-hmm. exceptional. And to not have won for that and then to later have to win for Training Day, you know, it's no wonder that he is kind of the Hollywood outsider that he is. I don't blame him. But I feel like the impact that, that the Spike Lee thing had this year really did affect black directors for many, many years to come. It was almost like they were saying, you know, Norman Jewison would have done a better job. Don't put this angry black man in, in the seat because he'll fuck it up. And look at how he fucked it up, you know. And, and in truth, the movie made a profit. It just didn't make – it made like $15 million profit. It cost 33 and it made 48 It didn't lose money. It didn't make a lot of money. And unfortunately, what what it needed was Oscar nominations to validate it. And they weren't mm-hmm. going to do that because they didn't like him, and they taught him a lesson. And that lesson was, shut your fucking mouth, you know? He doesn't... There's nothing in the movie that that is comforting, even remotely, to white people, which is... Which is not the way to win an Oscar, unfortunately. It's, right. not a, it's not a Jewish thing. It's a white person problem. Well, even and, the very last there, line. There's a great scene in there where um, he's he's been radicalized and he's, he's on campus and he's going to give this speech at a lecture hall. And this white girl comes up to him and she's like what, this typical liberal white girl who's like all excited about him and, and asks him, you know, I understand that I'm not black, but is there anything? What what can I do to help your cause? And says nothing and walks off, and it's just like this cold, hard slap in the face yeah. to white people. And I think that really turns people off, even though, even though he's kind of right. White women. The very last line of the movie. The last line of the movie must have left a really bitter taste in a lot of people's mouths who are still not quite used to the radicalism of the black community or the the, the how or black people who were so outspoken. The last quote, the last Malcolm X quote, read started out. I think that Nelson Mandela actually started reading the quote, and then um, Denzel Washington 
next over at the end, it ends, uh, we will be given the rights of human beings in the society, and we intend to bring into existence by any means necessary. And I yeah. emphasize that, by any means necessary. That was a scary thing still in 20 years ago. The thing I that think quote, is... Actually, so- they, they used the actual scene of the actual Malcolm X saying it at that point. Oh, did they? Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah that's people, I don't remember people that. use that as a sign that he's this horrible, dangerous person that's going to kill all white people. Right. Just by him saying, sort of, it's coded by any means necessary. It's, it may well be what he means, but I don't. Know, it's, it's the, I don't think it's what he meant. But that is the way that it, that it's interpreted, and the way that yeah. it's twisted into 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 scaring people, into, right. into, into the people type type of people who are able to be scared by that. Yeah, and it, and not a lot of civil rights people aren't. They they don't generally divide up between Malcolm X supporters and and Martin Luther King supporters, meaning that. You know, the one way is to be peace, peaceful and the other way is to be militant. Um, but what I think is funny is, like, how, how all the scary right-wingers right now are so afraid of Obama when he's just this, like, skinny little guy. <laughs> and how they were all so afraid of Spike Lee. And he's, like, he's like four foot eleven, And he's, he's like, tiny little bony, teeny tiny skinny man. And they Scrappy all little like, guy. I know. And they act like he's, like, the, the scariest thing in the world. Oh, my God. A black, an angry black man. That was the thing about him is that, you know, yes, he, he flapped his gums. He still does. He's very outspoken. But, you know, everybody acted so afraid of him, you know, and and Mm -hmm. people should have had open debates. Now, if you go back and you look at the reviews, you know, Ebert totally, of course, got it. Very supportive of Spike Lee's career. And it it did get enough good reviews where it should have done better in the Oscar race. I really wish I'd been blogging then. Because if you watch Malcolm X, you can't help but think of today. You know, you can't help but think of The Butler and Fruitvale Station and... 12 years a slave and think wow you know this this Malcolm Mm -hmm. X was really you know way ahead of its time in that regard and it's embarrassing that it took that many years after for for these films to be made it was really well received critically even now on the Rotten Tomatoes it has a 91 as a 91 percent average, which uh, it's hard to hard to gauge movies that are that old because you get a lot of recent reviews. But even at the time, I think it got got a really good reception. One going back to one thing you said, Craig, about people were unhappy with the casting. I can't imagine anybody except Denzel Washington at the time who they could have cast. But part of the problem was that, and that the, the complaints about the casting came from the black community, which must have stung even more, right. because you know Malcolm X in real life was not that dark and he was tall he was like six four and so they so but black people were saying well of course you make him shorter and blacker you know you got to make him shorter and blacker instead of making him the tall handsome light-skinned guy that he was and as handsome as denzel washington is i would say malcolm x was even more handsome in real life oh yeah for sure he's absolutely a stunning looking guy i mean he's like idris elba good looking oh i know but you know you see a lot of talent in um, Do the Right Thing and in uh, Malcolm X that is mind-blowing. And it's really, to me, the fault of the critics. I put it in there on their shoulders that they that they didn't usher him through better the way that they did so many other filmmakers that they thought were geniuses at the time. Mm. You know, they didn't really. They resisted Spike Lee. You sort of expect Oscar to be behind the times like that, but it should be a critic's job to be ahead of ahead of the game. And it's 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 come up a number of times before where I'm, we're looking back at some of these movies, and it turns out that 
the person who was championing them at the time that they should have been championed was Roger Ebert, and he's somebody who has not always been taken seriously in terms because he was a because he was he, he he made such a name for himself on TV that that sort of diminished his reputation among some of the snob people. But he was the guy who seems to always be the one who saw before anybody else did that these movies, the important movies, and the ones that we we would still remember and still be talking about. He he wasn't yeah. snowed by. By the trends and the in the in the hype, he he really saw the movies for what they what they were and what they would be in the future. Yeah, he was never well, motivated be, by the Ebert. fear of looking stupid. You know, like a lot of critics now, right. especially like blogger turn critics, they are so afraid of and Jeff Wells, people like that. They're so afraid of looking stupid that they don't want to go out on a limb and they don't want to you know, differ from the status quo. And thus you get these kind of ridiculous reviews of movies that then turn out to be wrong all of those years later, you know, but it is great. I mean, I don't know how many times that we've have to look back and find that Ebert was the only one that got a movie, you know, I'm seeing that Ebert ranks Malcolm X as one of the 10 best movies of the 1990s. Martin Scorsese also ranks it as one of the 10 best movies of the 1990s. Yeah, well, it's, good. it's a wonderful movie. I, I think what you were talking about before, Sasha, about the first half, um, it has such a, a vibrancy and an energy to it. It has It's similar to sort of the trajectory of do the right thing do the right thing starts out very similarly it's very it's funny it's it's bright it's colorful it's very energetic and then it kind of takes a turn as it goes along and to, to be more austere and i think the the line is much more clearly defined in, in malcolm x and it's, it's yeah. the second half is definitely it, it's colder looking it's it's just generally more serious but it 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 um it, to me, it's the two halves put together that, that, that elevate it from being really good to being great. Yeah, I know. Being it, from really good to being great. Yeah, and, but I felt like when I was watching it that this was not Spike Lee kind of resting on his talent. I felt like he was really, really trying hard to pay tribute to this to this subject, to this man. You know, it, it just, it really rings true that every shot is really, really carefully thought out, you know? And yet it's, he, he's, he doesn't, um, he doesn't let it stifle him either. A lot of people, when they approach a subject that's that important, they tend to back off a little bit and pull their punches a little bit, trying to be overly respectful. And he never is. He, he never, he makes no bones about painting his character at the beginning of being kind of a shady individual. You know, he, he, he's, he's not, he's not making a saint out of him. He's, it's a real ground level human portrait. He's not, he, he's not, putting velvet gloves on to tell the story just because he has such an amazing respect for the man. Yeah, he doesn't. I mean, those prison scenes are incredible. Um, so we should talk about another black director who made a movie that year. Carl Franklin made um, One False Move. I love that movie so much. If, 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 if that 1992 had had 10 nominations for Best Picture, it would be easy to fill all 10 slots, I think. And and One False Move would have to be one of those movies, one of my favorite movies of the year and one of my favorite movies of the 1990s. Mm. Really incredibly skillfully um, masterful movie. Yeah, he's a good director. I mean, he, he also went on to direct many, many other movies, very kind of uncelebrated, unsung, reliable, black director in hollywood you know he directed one true thing with meryl streep you know mm-hmm. and i think devil in a blue dress with yeah devil in a yes, blue dress uh-huh. with denzel washington you know 
Uh, he's just really diverse and interesting, yet no one ever really particularly talks about him, Carl Franklin. He, I, think he might, I think he may have trouble getting financing for, for big Hollywood movies, but didn't he direct a couple of episodes of, uh, of House of Cards for Netflix? Yeah, he sure did. That's right. Mm-hmm. He absolutely yeah. did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, the, so Fincher, Fincher recognizes his talent for yeah. sure. That's interesting. Um, though, to think about him because that that role and that female role. What's the actress's name who was in One False Move? I can't think offhand. That is one of the great female roles for a black woman in Hollywood yeah. history. I think, and to fa- and to think that she was totally overlooked is a, is criminal. Cinda Williams is her name. Cinda right? Williams. She was fantastic. Yeah. And Billy Bob Thornton and Bill Paxton. Mm-hmm. Definitely a very, you know, popular cult favorite, that one false move. Um, Another movie that was really a, a harbinger of things to come that came into 1992 that really made a huge splash, didn't do anything, it didn't make any, it didn't make a blip at the Oscars, but, but it had a resonance over the next. It's had resonance over the, last, uh, the following two decades. It was when Quentin Tarantino made Reservoir Dogs. Oh, no kidding. That was 1992? Res- yeah, mm-hmm. Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. Wow. And, uh, God. It just burst upon the scene. And I really like Reservoir Dogs better than I like Pulp Fiction. I, I know that that's not, an, not a popular stance, but it's I like it better than Pulp Fiction. Yeah. But it was a rough movie. It was a rough movie. It really, it was really incredibly violent. The torture scene, I think, really put a lot of people off. They just didn't know how to, didn't know how to deal with such a um, that kind of violence. And that kind of that kind of almost a glee, gleeful violence, you know. Because even back then, Tarantino really indulged in that and really seemed like he got a kick out of it. Hmm. <laughs> you know. Yeah. No, he did, and that that's interesting because that that was the beginning of his career. He's one of the most popular directors in Hollywood. Hmm. Uh, obviously, I just get the feeling that, like, you know, the critics are, you know, very white centric. They are, it must be said, you know, and they have been. And, and they're part of the, a lot of the reason why I think um, Malcolm X didn't do as well and why movies like, you know, filmmakers like, um, uh, you know, uh, One False Move? God, no, like Quentin Tarantino <laughs> okay. and Neil Jordan, who was who hit really big with Crying Game, why mm. they kind of get a pass and ushered through by the critics, and, and some directors don't. Um, mm. mm-hmm. I can't say that it's just because it's black and white. I know that sounds like ridiculous and racist, but you do have to wonder when you look at it, you look at it through history – a director like Spike Lee comes along, and even if he had been a white director saying exactly the same things that Spike Lee is saying, I just get the feeling he wouldn't have been given as much of a tr- much trouble as he was given. Maybe I'm wrong about that. I don't know. No, I think I you're, right. He's, you're right. He's right because he's I, dealing with difficult subjects, but at the same time, he he's he doesn't soften his his message at all. He's not going to say something just to make somebody happy. He's in fact, he seems to sort of gleefully poke people in the nose and that that is not going to do well with a with with a group of people who thrive on sort of the politically nice things to do yeah and he still does that by the way yeah because i think to him meanwhile if he has to shut up then he's he's you know he's doing it for the man you know and like lee's mind why should he have to you know right and he shouldn't I appreciate that about him. I really do. I, I, I tend to like people like that who are outspoken, you know, and, and, you know, people wanting him to just shut up. I, I don't know. It doesn't work for me. Interesting, uh, the box office that year, Aladdin was number one. The Bodyguard was number two. 
And Home Alone 2 was number three. Basic Instinct, number four. Lethal Weapon 3, number five. Batman Returns, A Few Good Men, Sister Act, Bram Stoker's Dracula, and Wayne's World. Not looking too good there in the box office. It's sort of showing Mm-mm. you what kind of wasteland is to come. But I also have to say re- that after... I'm really fond of Dracula. I think it's really... A sty- I really like um, what Coppola did with Bram Stoker's Dracula. I think it was really stylish and really creepy and a really beautiful movie and really intriguing in a lot of ways. It reminds me in some ways, strangely, like of Hugo, of a director who goes deep into an uh, experimental area. And it made $200 million, $250 million, mm-hmm. which is incredible for a Coppola movie. Um, mm-hmm. But I also noticed this year is sort of a um, a trend away from, you know, after Fatal Attraction, like American actresses now, we're, we're getting into the, like, crazy town, you know, where you have Basic Instinct as Sharon Stone, and you have The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, you know, and you're starting to see, like, the crazy women movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after that, actresses kind of sort of have nowhere else to go. Not to totally put a mm. damper on it, but that's where we're headed because that's where we are right now. So if you want to see one of the early things that makes it go that direction, you can see this like kind of psycho woman trend that happens. You know, women stop being like real characters. They start being these kind of crazy, um, you know, villains, not trustworthy. And then on the other hand, you have Emma Thompson, you know, and, and the, the rise of the respectable British actress. As opposed to the dumb American. And the movies that you mentioned in the top ten, Lethal Weapon, Batman Returns, uh, a few, um, those are not, those are not, those don't have a big roles for women. Those mm. women. Those, uh, wait, 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 Batman wait a minute. Returns. Batman Returns did have Catwoman, didn't it? Yeah, she's great. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Forgot about that. Catwoman. And, you know, Sister Act did, too. Or is it mm, Sister that, Act? That's true. Yeah. So some Sister of them Act, are. Yeah. Women are still think, making money. I think the but, way, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to say in the middle of that is basic instinct where where I think it would be easy to um, uh, the way that movie was received. I think it was received as Sharon Stone being the crazy evil character. But I think if you really look back and watch that movie, she's sort of actually the hero of the film. And knowing Paul Verhoeven well enough, I think that was sort of the way it was intended. If you look at all the men in that movie, they're horrible and stupid and annoying, and she's this strong, opinionated, smart, intelligent woman, and all these men just, like, totally freak out over her. I think, I think that movie, which is typical for Paul Groven, where the movie is received in a way totally different than the way he intended it. Right. Yeah, I thought that, too, except for she... Yeah, that's true. I mean, I guess an argument could be made for that, but... It seemed to me like she was getting more attention for like showing her her bush than anything else, you know. I agree, but that's not the movie's fault as much as it is the stupid people writing and talking about the movie's fault. And she was a sociopath, you know, and not. I mean, I'm not saying she should be portrayed as as good. I think it was it was interesting that they had a mm-hmm. such a strong female, but but in a way, it was kind of just the same old thing because. It was all. It was still all about the sex, you know. Still all about the and sex. She, it was a bisexual or lesbian sociopath too, which made it even worse. Because and, and that caused another. That was we talked about that controversy last week when we were talking about part of the backlash against um, Silence of the Lambs. The gay community was really becoming really sensitive to that sort of thing, and we're getting tired of it. Yeah, I would. I would feel less strongly about it if the she she is a sociopath a character, but the people that she is victimizing all completely deserve it. <laughs> <laughs> I, it, it so I, 
I'm not sure what I'm trying to say at this point, but um, yeah, never mind. No, I know. I, I I struggle with that. It was it's a big basic instinct is one of the big feminist debate movies, you know, to to figure out. It's what, hard because the guy who wrote it is a total pig. Yeah, um, and it's, it's it's just so Esther unrealistic. House, right? was that yeah, House? House? Yeah. it's so unrealistic, you know. And she takes an ice pick, and I like I like the hard, soft edges. Do you? You know, like she's toying with you, she's turning you on, and at the same time, she's sort of one step ahead of everybody. She's smart. She's using her sexuality. You know, she's brilliant, as they tell you a million times in the movie. Um, it's just my problem with the movie isn't even the way that women are represented so much as the bad writing and mm-hmm. the way it ends. It's so bad. You know, it's if, really sleazy. If any of the lines of dialogue were halfway good, I would like the movie uh, better. But That's typical for Verhoeven, that, too. He's always yeah. very corny and stylized. That's, that's yeah. sort of his thing. And I don't know... I think it's I think it's intentional. I mean, he's playing into the sort of lurid B movie thing, but there's he did the same thing with RoboCop, and he did it with Starship Troopers and a lot of other movies that people don't think quite as well of. It's a similar thing, and I don't know. To me, it just it, it works. And like she gets on top of him, she ties him up, and she fucks him, and then she stabs him. It's like, or does she? You know. I don't know. I mean, it, to me, it's a guilty pleasure more than anything else. But it, it does sort of make me think that, you know, women or actresses are sort of in trouble if this is if this is the kind of movies that they're getting attention for. Because right on the heels of Fatal Attraction. It makes a great yeah. double bill with Fatal Attraction. But it's like that. And we're starting to see the trend of that, like, as you say. Right. And now all we see in movies for women are just every movie I see, it's like they're a wife or a girlfriend. You know, wife or and in, in Reservoir Dogs, there's, I think there are two women who both get killed immediately. As soon as you see them, they both get killed. The only two women in the whole movie get killed the instant you see them. Yeah. It's sort of like we're, we're back in Shakespearean times where all the men are playing all the parts. <laughs> I wondered recently that Tarantino said that it's funny in retrospect. He, you know, no one knew who he was at the time. He'd come out of nowhere. And he, he was playing up already. He was playing up his, he knew that he was entertaining in interviews and he, he, he reveled in that. He, he liked to tell stories. He liked to be outrageous. He liked to say crazy things. But this is what he said in 1992 in an interview in LA Weekly. He was sort of running, uh, uh, dogging some of the directors. He said, uh, uh, David, David Lynch has disappeared. So far up his own ass that I have no desire to see another David Lynch movie ever again. He said Gus Van Sant, after My Private Idaho, became a parody of himself. He said a lot of these guys, he said a lot of these guys become known for their quirky personality. And then when they can do any movie they want, they showcase their their quirky personality. So that's coming from Tarantino. He's saying that these, he's complaining about these directors who showcase their quirky personalities of all people to be saying that. And imagine if Spike Lee had said that. It's like oh, know, really. Tarantino totally gets a pass. Yeah. In fact, he was like celebrated for it almost. I can't believe he said that about David Lynch, the nerve. I know. I know. It's terrible. That's awful. <laughs> One more thing I wanted to say. It's gonna, it's, we, maybe I should, it might have been more appropriate uh, last week because um, 1991 was the last year that Pauline Kale reviewed for the New York she, for several years, knew that he was becoming more and more um, um, disabled with Parkinson's disease, and she was becoming less and less oh. uh, capable of remembering um, lines from movies. She would leave a movie and not be able to write. Not be, she, she had to bring along people to take notes for her in order to finish her reviews, and so she decided to bow out. Oh, my and God. So it, it was, it was 1991. The last movie, the last major movie that she reviewed was uh, Dances with Wolves, 
I want to read a little excerpt that she said was kind of, kind of funny. She said, uh, you hear Kevin Costner's laid back accent. You see his deliberately goofy faints and falls, all the close-ups of his handsomeness. This epic was made by a bland megalomaniac. The Indians should have called him, the Indians should have called him plays with a camera. You look at that, you look at that untroubled face and you know that he can make everything seem light, like everything. He can make everything seem lightweight. Oh, God. So she she just she just really savaged him. She hated that movie. She really liked Goodfellas. She said that it's movie making with such bravura that you respond to it as if you're at a live performance. Wow. So right, she was right on the ball right up until the very end. Oh, Parkinson's, that's horrible. No, oh, so see, sad. And that's a, that's a critic who is thinking forward and not thinking past. She's not mm-hmm. accepting the status quo. She's challenging it, and you just right. don't get that anymore with the internet hive mind. <laughs> Owen Gleiberman. <laughs> Owen Gleiberman um, was with her at the very last movie that she um, reviewed. They 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 were at a screening together to see uh, scenes from a mall, and she told Owen Gleiberman, "quote unquote, movies now are so shitty." This <laughs> 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 is in her biography. She's right, though. I, I also have mm-hmm. to say a little word for um, one of my favorite movies, which is. Um, uh, a River Runs Through It, which didn't get a Best Picture nomination. I still don't know why to this day. And I watch it a lot, you know, and I know it's not a, a known guy in the lead, but and Brad Pitt has the this, this supporting part. I still don't know why that the movie never got any Oscar love. I, to me, it's such a complete story. It's so moving. I love spending time with that family, and I love being inside that writer's head. You know, uh, Norman... Mm-hmm. Norman Maine, or no, it's not Norman Maine. That's on Golden Pond. <laughs> no, Norman, Norman Maine is like a, a Star is Born. A Star is Born, right? <laughs> star is Born. Who was the guy that wrote A River Runs Through It? <laughs> uh, Norman McLean. Norman McLean. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a beautiful movie, and it's so it's so Robert Redford, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's really so much him, and, and my it's one of my partners favorite movies he loves that movie so much river runs through it it is so good it's so beautiful the ending of it is just will crush your heart you know I loved and did not understand in my youth are dead, even Jesse. But I still reach out to them. Of course, now I am too old to be much of a fisherman. And now I usually fish the big waters alone, although some friends think I shouldn't. But when I am alone in the half-light of the canyon, all existence seems to fade to a being with my soul and memories. And the sounds of the big Blackfoot River and a four-count rhythm and the hope that a fish will rise. Eventually, 
All things merge into one. And a river runs through it. The river was cut by the world's great flood and runs over rocks from the basement of time. On some of the rocks are timeless raindrops. Under the rocks are the words. And some of the words are theirs. I am haunted by waters. I am haunted by waters, he says. It's just so poetic all the way through. I don't know what's wrong with the Academy that they wouldn't. They like this British claptrap. I mean, I don't know what, like, I mean, it's great. Okay, fine. It's great. Let's admit. It's, you know, Howard's End. It's really hard to get made. That guy, he didn't have any money. He scraped, mm-hmm. you know. They didn't know if they were getting paid, if they would ever finish the movie. So it's wonderful that it got Oscar attention, you know. Um, Scent of a Woman doesn't need to be Best Picture nominee. It only got I'm in there. actually more offended, not offended, but I, I'm. It's one of my least favorite um, um, Al Pacino performances. I know that's a lot of people love it, but I don't like that, and I don't like Scarface. I think he's at his his over the top worst. He's much better when he's you know Michael Corleone subtle. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm really with you there. I think by then he was Al Pacino was playing Al Pacino. He knew how to use the, the that voice, the Al Pacino voice. Uh, he mm-hmm. knew how to, to play on that. He was becoming almost a parody of himself. I'm in the dark right. here. <laughs> but um, he's but he's he's guilty pleasure funny in Scarface though. I mean, it's not yeah. like, it's a totally oh, yeah, I mean, over absolutely. the top. Absolutely, a lot of scar And speaking of over the top, Bad Lieutenant was also in 1992. Mm-hmm. And um, Bitter Moon, Roman Polanski, and Benny's Video, directed by Michael Haneke, by by a director wow. named Michael Haneke. Benny's Video, I have no idea what that's about, but that came Me out that either. year, too. Since I mangled that 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 quote from Paul and Kill, I'm going to try again. I'm going to I'm going to read something else and see if I can mangle this too. This is what David Hansen said in Newsweek as sort of a, a farewell to Paul and Kill. Really touching. He said, "If I can find it here, the passionate cinematic energy she sought became increasingly supplanted by a crass, bludgeoning energy that was like a cruel parody of the kinds of movies she fought for." Kale may have changed the face of film criticism, but she was always playing a bigger game, a more impossible game. She wanted to change movies themselves. Hmm. Wow. Wow. So bye, bye, Pauline. It's really a sad thing because at the end of an era, she was really, she was really incredibly influential. We haven't always talked about how influential she was. For instance, for some, she hasn't always been. She hasn't always made the same choices that I would have made or liked the same movies that I liked. But she, they say that she was responsible for, for driving Miss Daisy becoming uh, winning at the New York Film Critics uh, Awards because she liked that movie a lot. It's not that she didn't like Do the Right Thing. She liked it, too. She just liked driving Miss Daisy a lot more. Oh, God. I know. It's hard to believe, right? <laughs> um, Husbands and Wives was also... By the way, 1992. We haven't talked about husbands and wives. I forgot about that. But that not that amazing that it didn't get in the best picture either? I know. Really? No. Yeah. I mean, not to, to totally derail the Pauline Kale, but it's, yeah. <laughs> no, it's me who keeps trying to insert that. I mean, like I said, it really would have been more appropriate to bring her up last week. But since I didn't, I just wanted to say goodbye to her because it oh. was the end of an era. And she, 
And there was, I can't think of any other film critic throughout, because, you know, she was born in 1920. So when, by 1991, 92, she was 72 years old. Wow. But in the middle of the 1970s, in, in the peak of, of, the, of the greatest um, golden age in the 1970s, she, was, she would have been 55 years old. And oh. then uh, she was 65 in the middle of the 80s, and then she was... 71 years old in 1991 so as she declined it seems like hollywood was declining too i can't believe she got um parkinson's that's terrible no really it's just so horrible. terrible you know they don't but they don't really make film critics like that anymore we don't live in a in an era where a film critic like that could ever stand out or have that kind mm-hmm. of power she had her disciples. They called them, you know, the Paulettes, the people who were who were up and coming, who she sort of uh, nurtured, and she gave a lot of them a boost in order and helped them get, like Owen Gleiberman, for instance, uh, was one of her best little little disciples. No kidding. And, and she met uh, Stephanie Zakarik uh, the year that she uh, retired, and Stephanie Zakarik was 29 years old in, in 1991. Oh wow, she's a critic I can't stand. But she, she writes well. She writes like kale, but she but her taste is questionable. Oh my God, is it ever? It's just unreadable. But but yeah, that's. But you know, it's 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 a special combination of gifts that make you a good film critic. It's not just good writing, and it's not good taste in movies. It's it's a worldliness. It's a compassion and a worldliness to get the bigger picture, which is something Ebert had. You know, in Spades. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of film critics I read now, like if you go, you know, Jonathan Rosenbaum's like a really ex- respected film critic, mm-hmm. right? He writes for um, Chicago Reader. Mm-hmm. He panned Malcolm X, you know, and you're just kind of like, really, dude? I mean, he's somebody I really respect and think is a good writer, but I just think he totally missed the boat on that. And all of his complaints are so insular to himself, you know. I think if you hey, have your his, head up your own his, ass, you're never going to be a good... I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say, if you have your head up your own ass or you're licking your own balls, not to be gross, but you're never going to be a good film critic because you just don't get the bigger picture. Every year when I look at Jonathan Rosenbaum's top ten of the year, there's like half of them I haven't even heard of. The That's kind the thing. Of is he he is. A, he's a more, not edgier, but he's less in the mainstream, mm-hmm. and especially these days. I mean, Kale covered everything, and he, Rosenbaum seems to more favor the the kind of stuff you'd see in Village Voice or something like that. Right, right. Well, that was Kale's thing. You know, she, she, didn't, she didn't even call them films. She called them movies. She wanted, she loved the, the pop part of, the pop culture part of movies. Yeah. The thing that I like about her, and I think this touches on what Sasha was saying, is she didn't really get started doing it until she was quite a bit older and had a wealth of life experience behind her. She wasn't this mm-hmm. 20-year-old punk typing away on the Internet about the the latest comic book movie. You know, She had lived her life and raised a daughter and, and, and everything before she really became established as a critic. Right, she brought she a wealth of life experience to her craft. She started being published in the 60s, and she was 45 years old already. Right. I mean, considering how important the job of film critics are, you'd think that people would be more careful with who they hire. It's like, you know, these these filmmakers work so hard to get to where they are, you know, and screenwriters work so hard, and actors work so hard. They all just put really put it on the line to be able to make movies at all. And for all of that hard work and, and experience and guts, you know, to just be placed at the feet of people who have no business judging this stuff, you know, is mm. really a pity. And it does matter because the, the critical voice does shape a movie's um, success at the box office and its, its eventual trajectory uh, in history. It's up to the critics. And so if we don't have 
you know, really good, respected, responsible critics doing that, I don't know what comes next, you know? It's hard because about 75% of movies suck, and so you need you need smart, thoughtful people lifting up that other 25%. If, if, they're, if they're not going to do it, then those that 25% is just going to go away. And, you know, nobody, they, people don't really care that much what the critics think about a bad movie. Like, they'll still go see it if they mm-hmm. want to. Especially the movies that are sold, that are, that are marketed so well, that, that they're critic-proof. You know, all they need, all you really need is to know the title and, and uh, three million kids are going to show up on opening day to see it because it's the type of movies they go for. It doesn't matter because those kids don't read reviews anyway of any kind from anybody. But but the the younger people who are who are writing reviews now, it's not as if they haven't seen the old movies. They have. I know. I believe that they know a lot about film history, but they didn't live through it. They didn't live through it like Pauline Kael and like Roger Ebert did. Yeah. Right. And Roger Ebert, when he was young, he was writing film reviews. He started young, but yeah, I don't think he was ever that sure about himself even then you know that he Mm. was absolutely right like some of the critics i read now they're so certain that their little 24 year old take is exactly the right take on a movie Mm. you know um i don't know it's depressing let's all kill ourselves yeah i've seen it change (laughs) in all the years i've been online i've watched it devolve you know from a time when critics really were respected and it, it was kind of an honor to be a film critic to now where you really have to be someone who lived through that to know the difference between a good critic and a bad critic. You know, there's still some really good ones out there, but most of them have been replaced by nobodies who could, who get paid nothing. You know? That's the thing. I guess it's just a salary thing, is it? Because it seems like the, the, the venues, the, the newspapers and magazines where these legendary critics write would, have, would realize what a valuable commodity they have and, and pay them more respect instead of kicking them out and replacing them by somebody who has a younger face or younger style yeah and i also think that it's also a treacherous time because a lot of websites depend on advertising money and if they have a critic who's totally shitting on a movie really badly you know they're mm. gonna fu- they're gonna fire that critic so mm. they can get the ad money you know that's the mm. other problem is you have to really be the new york times you know to to be able to just say we're gonna write a bad review of a movie and and you know, and still get advertising because we're the New York Times. And the New York Times has a way of, of disliking a movie without without bashing it, without destroying it. But a lot of critics really, really enjoy writing those really scathing reviews that can brutalize a movie and that are, have some really quotable, cruel lines, you know, that get repeated again and again. And, and the studios don't like that. And, and so, like you said, the advertising money dries up for the people who are publishing those reviews. Right, or, or so they say. Like I've never really seen any direct proof of it, but I hear that mm. that's the case. Mm. Um, anything else we forgot? We're coming to the uh, end here. Yeah, I guess so. I'm looking at the other movies. There were some another movie that I really like a lot that didn't get get, get any recognition at all was The Last of the Mohicans, Michael Mann's um, um, movie uh, about the from based on the classic novel that Daniel Day Lewis was in. Was oh yeah, movie, that was that year. God, it all sort of blends together, doesn't it? Yeah. So many good movies that year. Like I said, it'd be easy to pick really great movies and none of them would be Sin of a Woman. Well, Mr. Sims, you are a cover-up artist and you are a liar. But not a snitch! Excuse me? 
No, I don't think I will. Mr. Slade. This is such a crock of shit. Please watch your language, Mr. Slade. You are in the Barrett School, not a barracks. Mr. Sims, I will give you one final opportunity to speak up. Mr. Sims doesn't want it. He doesn't need to be labeled still worthy of being a bad man. What the hell is that? What is your motto here? Boys, inform on your classmates. Save your hide. Anything short of that, we're going to burn you at the stake? Well, gentlemen, when the shit hits the fan, some guys run and some guys stay. Here's Charlie facing the fire, and there's George hiding in Big Daddy's pocket. And what are you doing? You're going to reward George and destroy Charlie. Are you finished, Mr. Slade? No, I'm just getting warmed up. I don't know who went to this place. William Howard Taft, William Jennings Bride, William Tell, whoever. Their spirit is dead, if they ever had one. It's gone. You're building a rat ship here. A vessel for seagoing snitches. And if you think you're preparing these minnows for manhood, you better think again. Because I say you are killing the very spirit this institution proclaims it instills. What a sham. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? I mean, the only class in this act is sitting next to me. And I'm here to tell you, this boy's soul is intact. It's non-negotiable. You know how I know? Someone here, and I'm not going to say who, offered to buy it. Only Charlie here wasn't selling. Sir, you're out of order. Out of order? I show you out of order. You don't know what out of order is, Mr. Trask. I'd show you, but I'm too old. I'm too tired. I'm too fucking blind. If I were the man I was five years ago, I'd take a flamethrower to this place. Out of order. Who the hell do you think you're talking to? I've been around, you know. There was a time I could see. And I have seen boys like these, younger than these, their arms torn out, their legs ripped off. But there is nothing like the sight of an amputated spirit. There is no prosthetic for that. You think you're merely sending this splendid foot soldier back home to Argonne with his tail between his legs, but I say you are executing his soul. And why? Because he's not a bad man. Bad men. You hurt this boy, you're going to be bad bums. The lot of you. And Harry, Jimmy, Trent, wherever you are out there, fuck you too. Stand down, Mr. Slade. I'm not finished. As I came in here, I heard those words. Cradle of leadership. Well, when the bow breaks, the cradle will fall. And it has fallen here. It has fallen. Makers of men. Creators of leaders. Be careful what kind of leaders you're producing here. I don't know if Charlie's silence here today is right or wrong. I'm not a judge or jury. But I can tell you this. He won't sell anybody out to buy his future. And that, my friends, is called integrity. That's called courage. Now that's the stuff leaders should be made of.
Now, I have come to the crossroads in my life. I always knew what the right path was. Without exception, I knew, but I never took it. You know why? It was too damn hard. Now, here's Charlie. He's come to the crossroads. He has chosen a path. It's the right path. It's a path made of principle that leads to character. Let him continue on his journey. You hold this boy's future in your hands, committee. It's a valuable future. Believe me. They made a crap load of money. People love that movie, though, didn't they? I didn't yeah. think that, that it did. As I recall, it was a big surprise when it won the Globe. I remember people saying, wow, that's really weird. Nobody expected it to. So from then on, it kind of gained its momentum and then became a sleeper hit, and people started seeing it. But it took a while, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Even more more absurd that it was nominated for Best Picture, that Martin Brest was nominated for Best Director, compared to the other directors who made these other movies that we've been talking about this year. Martin Brest, who went on to direct uh, Jiggly. <laughs> and, and I, you can't you can't dismiss his entire career for that one film. I'm sorry, I'm not going to let you I, I, do that. I, I, well, I, it's I, tempting, I, but that's not fair. I know. He started I, we, out. I think we've very... had this discussion before. You 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 think more highly of him than I do. But he uh, he started he, out more promising, I think, in his early career. I don't still know. You know, I'm looking at his filmography. He really only did five or six movies, and and they're Scent of a Woman, Midnight Run, Beverly Hills Cop. Meet Joe Black and Jiggly. Midnight what Run else? is really good, though. Midnight, Midnight Run is all right. Yeah, I, I give you that. I, I, uh. I mean, he's not Stanley Kubrick, but he's not. <laughs> he's better than the guy that direct, directed Jiggly. That's all I'm saying. He didn't direct a, deserve a Best Director Academy Award, though, over Spike Lee or, you know. No, but he's he's one in a long line of people who have that honor of being nominated in favor of <laughs> better people. Right. It's true. You want to know how to make an Oscar movie? Make Scent of a Woman. That's how you make yeah. an Oscar mm -hmm. movie. <laughs> Push, pushes emotional buttons, and people dig that. It makes you feel good at the end. It really does. And, Whereas and Malcolm X scares the shit out of you. It scares the shit out of you. Oh, my God. Scary Muslims. Black people. Ah! <laughs> They're going to burn us down. <laughs> but um, Malcolm X is a, is a genius piece of work. Um, Scent of a Woman is an enjoyable film, I have to admit. Yeah, with, it's, with, it's, um, it's emotional and it's moving. But. And it has that great early performance by uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman as the prep school asshole. He's so great in that. And uh, the star, the cute cutie pie, what's his name? The young guy who plays um, opposite Al Pacino is great. I don't think the movie would be half as good if his performance wasn't as, as good as it was. Didn't he play Robin? In the, was he was Batman Robin. Movie? I forget his yeah. name, but... <laughs> Uh, Chris O'Donnell. Chris, Chris O'Donnell. I actually interviewed him once. He was my first interview for... Uh, oh, yeah? I think it was for Variety, maybe, or for for Awards Daily. He's not the brightest bulb, but a very sweet man. So, I'm surprised we didn't mention Marissa Tomei with My Cousin Vinny winning. That's one of the big Oscar moments. It I really is. It. Yeah, it's a big one. It's a but big what are you going to say about it? Well, if anybody's still listening, we probably should have said it at the beginning because you're right. It is the biggest kind of biggest story of the year. Um, with all those great performances uh, for her to win, there people thought so many different things. Like they thought that she, uh, that somebody read the name wrong. Was it Jack Palance or somebody? Some old guy at the thing read the name wrong. And they also thought it was because she was the only American. Like it really 
it did not go over well. I, I don't Three have the list because they didn't see it coming. I don't see have the list in front of me, but who were who were her competitors that year? Judy Davis for Husbands and Wives, Joan Plowright for Enchanted April, Vanessa Redgrave for Howard's End, and frickin' Miranda Richardson for Damage. Oh my God, Miranda Richardson was so great. Judy Davis was so great. The thing uh, is, Marissa Tomei, she won the Oscar and she won the MTV Movie Award, and that's about it. That's what she won for My Cousin Vinny that year. She yeah. won those two awards, the Everybody Oscar and the surprised. MTV Popcorn Award. It's possible that all the really good performances in that category you know, split up the voting so that mm-hmm. the kind of the Jennifer Lawrence vote went to... You, um, she was really, really, really entertaining in that movie, though, and she, she owns that movie in a way that most supporting actresses never get a chance to shine. She really is that. She's the only thing worth seeing in that movie, and she's hilarious. And they, she's yeah, fantastic. I don't, I don't mean to be, I don't, I didn't mean it to sound negative towards her because she's great. Mm-hmm. It's just surprising that Oscar is so reluctant to reward comic things, especially mm-hmm. that that she's shown through among all these these established heavy hitters. Yeah, it didn't go over well. She and it took her years to recover from that career-wise, and she eventually did, and she got nominated again for in the bedroom. And now and, the Marissa and Tomei the thing too. is remember in the wrestler that yeah. she was and she was like totally nude in the wrestler, wasn't she? But there was a time when you say her name and people laughed. It was a joke. It was considered. Do you a joke. think it's because she was just so so? Maybe it was a sexy thing. She was the she was the sexiest nominee that year, and that that can happen sometimes. You know, maybe well, she got just, a backlash for that. I don't mind it now because I'm so sick of seeing anybody but the Americans win at the Oscars. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> so it doesn't bother me anymore. It didn't really bother me then, but it was kind of embarrassing that judy davis has never won an oscar um ever and she's so great and she's so great she deserved to win in husbands and wives i would have given her the oscar in a heartbeat for that part Mm -hmm. she was so funny you know talk about funny she's so funny in that movie i love husbands and wives and and one of the funniest things is judy judy davis laying in bed while liam neeson's going down on her (laughs) and she's trying to her mind starts to wander and she's like she's a hedgehog and she's a fox and i started to wonder who was the hedgehog and who was the fox you know while she's (laughs) she's supposed to be enjoying sex with and then you have Sidney pollock with his silly little girlfriend who's all into you know astrology (laughs) and him trying to get back with judy davis and you know uh husbands and wives is that the one that also has the juliette lewis hideousness is that husbands and wives right i can't recall where he meets the Columbia student, Woody Allen meets up with Juliette Lewis and has another old man, young woman fantasy that played out. Um, Juliette Lewis, he kisses her on her 18th birthday or something like that. <laughs> so that part's hard to get through for me, but that's Woody Allen for you. Um, Especially in light of what was happening in Woody Allen's life or yeah. simultaneously as he was making this movie. Right. That he would have the audacity to do that even. And you can't even watch Husbands and Wives without thinking about Mia Farrow because it mm-hmm. really is an indictment of her, that movie. You know, just like Hannah and her sisters was. But Husbands mm-hmm. and Wives is really like, you know, she's manipulative. She's oppressive um and she always gets what she wants she's great in it mia farrow um i think she was she really inspired some woody allen to make some great movies but she took a beating in his movies she sure did and especially in husbands and wives but man is she good i love my favorite despite all the great scenes with judy davis and liam neeson and Sidney pollock and all those great scenes in husbands and wives my favorite ones are the ones with woody allen and mia farrow where they're fighting you know, and she's she talks about her poetry, and you know he's so discouraging of that. And 
Um, she just she she gets at him with a rawness that you never have seen from her, and it could be what was going on in their lives. I don't know what the timing was, but whatever it was, he got a great performance out of her, and it's it's really a scandal that it, it didn't get more Oscar nominations. I don't know again if the Sunyi thing was breaking right around the time of Oscars, and maybe that's why. I have no idea. I, I got to look at the timeline to see, but. Um, but it's a, it's a, one of Woody Allen's greatest movies. His last great one, I think, before Blue Jasmine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm trying to see if they made any movies together after that. I don't. I don't. No, no. I think that was the last that last one, wasn't oh, it? Yeah. That was it. Yeah, Absolutely. It was over and with then after from that. then on, it was yeah. it was post Sunyi Woody Allen, mm-hmm. where his work was very angry, not as good, I don't mm-hmm. think, as his other stuff until Blue Jasmine. Um, yeah. But it's nice to see Marissa Tomei make good. You know, she did have to live that down. Uh, but she's she's a really good actress. She still is. She really is. I mean, I really would have liked to see her uh, win for The Wrestler. She was my favorite part of The Wrestler. Yeah, you hated that movie. <laughs> I hated the movie. I did hate that movie with the passion, but she's the best thing in it. Oh, God. Boy, I, you know how I feel about any kind of movie where, with boxing or wrestling. I don't have any patience for that. <laughs> Oh dear. All right, you guys. Well, I think that's going to have to do it for our podcast. Sorry, listeners who like us to go on longer, but we're tired. It's going to be. And I'm sorry we didn't talk more about the crying game. Probably a lot of our listeners. It may be their favorite, your favorite movie of the year. I know. I bet it is. I bet. I know that it's the favorite movie of 1992 for a lot of people. And we didn't really talk about it at all. But so I just want to mention that. Sorry. (laughs) You know the crying game. that I remember it hitting really big. For some reason, I've never really been interested in watching it after that first time I saw it. I don't know what it is. I should probably watch it. People again. get caught up in the surprise, but there's yeah. so much more to it than that. Yeah, it's a really wonderful movie. Incredibly. Imagine that movie going over in the internet age, where they pick and pick out every little detail of the movie before it even comes out. I mean, that movie managed to maintain the sense of surprise for a really long time, which would be unheard of today. Yeah, and it's also one of the. F- one of the few films that portrays a uh, transgender, I guess you could say, uh, mm-hmm. character in a, in a, you know, as a, like a normal human being, <laughs> not as a freak, you know. Right. Did you guys see on the news, uh, I think it was local news, but maybe it wasn't, a transgender kid who was, who was elected uh, homecoming queen? No, I didn't. And it's just like, it's like those things that just made, it re- briefly restored my faith in humanity. Oh, it's so sweet. It meant so much to her uh, to be voted and accepted by all of her, uh, her peers, and they were all excited about it, and the administration was all excited about it, and it's like 10 years ago, that never would have happened, not in a million years. Wow, that's incredible. Wow. That's an amazing school. Yeah, I, can't, I wish I could remember where it was, but whatever. The Crying Game, though, became notorious for that. Like, you know, I don't know if it's people still joke about it, but after it came out, and for many years after, people would go, oh, Crying Game. You know, that's all it would take is the one name, Crying Game, and and Mm -hmm. that would connote a a woman as a man, you know, a a man dressed up as a woman. People would make that joke. I don't know if they still do. And that sudden reveal, that sudden reveal that when you finally realize, when you realize that you're with uh, uh, a a woman who was a man. Right. And another gender-bending movie that you, that that I watched because you recommended it, Sasha. That it maybe it doesn't compare to the movies that we've talked about as far as uh, lasting value, but it was a really enjoyable movie. That I'm glad that you convinced me to watch it. Was a Prelude to a Kiss. Yeah, 
Yeah, we didn't talk about it at all. We were going to, but we never did. Mm, yeah. And you were talking about how the author um, wrote a... Craig Lucas. Craig yeah. Lucas wrote, um, was a playwright who wrote Reckless, which Mia Farrell starred in uh, two or three years later, that um, Mary Louise Parker um, played the role on Broadway. And I saw that. I saw her on Broadway play that. Mm. And she, she signed my playbill in like 2004, 2005. I can't remember when, what wow. year that was. so neat. Yeah. That is so exciting. Um, I love Prelude to a Kiss because it's sort of like you love who you love. And, and, you know, yes, it's great to have the whole package, you know, the outside wonderful body, the flesh. But, but it's really the soul inside the person. And, and Alec Baldwin mm-hmm. and this old man are kind of stuck together as this couple. But they are in love, you know. It doesn't matter mm-hmm. really that he, he is who he is on the outside except for the fact that he's dying. But he still loves her mm-hmm. even as an old man, you know. It's a wonderful love story, and we were talking about how beautiful Meg Ryan looks in it. Um, and you were saying about how that movie was probably missold. It would have been great if they could have if they could have been able to insinu- insinuate or, or, or hint in the marketing that it was a little bit similar to Big. But it's hard to talk about what the movie is about without giving too much away. Yeah. And I don't even want to say any more than that because it's like you watch half of the movie and you have no idea where it's going. You're halfway into the movie before there's a. It suddenly takes a wild, crazy turn into fantasy land and becomes yeah. something else entirely. It didn't quite get accepted by audiences at all. You know, mm-hmm. I remember it, it didn't do so well. But it, it does for me. It's sort of a hidden gem. It's it's one I like to pull out every when I'm feeling kind of depressed, and mm-hmm. it always cheers me up. I love the guy who plays her as the old man and Kathy Bates. Mm-hmm. Kathy Bates is in it, right? She's the sister. I know, just a really small role. I can't yeah. believe really that she would take such a small well, role because. because she had won the Oscar, and yeah, she, she must have she, had. She must have just really liked the material. No, she likes him because you know she comes mm-hmm. from um, she comes from theater. Mm-hmm, right. And I bet uh, you that that she knew him. You know, we forgot to talk about Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. I'm oh, surprised because I know you you like that movie a lot, don't you, Tasha? I, we should have talked about it at the beginning because I would have put that. I would have put a quote from that. Yeah, but the reason I thought of it is because Alec Baldwin was in both of those movies. And this is at the stage when Alec Baldwin hadn't started only playing Alec Baldwin, when he would actually do acting where he would change from movie to movie and take on different characteristics and different personalities. That's what I really like about Prelude to a Kiss is he's not playing himself at all. He's playing a totally different opposite type of person from what the, the characters that you normally see him play. Wow, wow. I was afraid going in that we weren't going to do this year justice because I was looking at the list belatedly and there was just so many good movies this year. Mm. There's so many good movies. I can't believe we forgot to talk about Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. It's like one of my favorite movies of all time. I know. I know it is. Oh, dear. And I can't even put in a clip because here it is all the way at the end at the two-hour mark. I'll never be able to fit in a clip. (laughs) Oh, no. And there's so many great scenes from it. Oh, well. I guess I'll have to just let it go. But um, can I read you Craig Lucas's biography? Really yeah. fast, short biography. Yeah, because I don't know it. Don't Born know in uh, 1951, he was found in an abandoned car in Atlanta. Lucas was adopted when he was eight months old by a conservative Pennsylvania couple. His father was an FBI agent. His mother was a housewife and painter. She was born a Jew but suppressed the identity which Lucas relates to in his storytelling. He graduated in 1969 from Conestoga High School in Pennsylvania. In 1960s and 70s, Lucas became interested in the political left and discovered an attraction towards men. He is openly gay and recalls that his coming out made it possible for him to develop as a playwright and as a person. In 1973... 
Lucas left Boston University with a Bachelor of Arts in Theater and Creative Writing. His mentor, Anne Sexton, urged him to try his luck in New York as a playwright. He worked in many day jobs while performing in Broadway musicals, including Shenandoah, On the 20th Century, Rex, and Sweeney Todd. Stephen Sondheim would later tell him he was a better writer than an actor. Mm -hmm. Lucas met Norman Rennie in 1979. Their first collaboration was Marry Me a Little. The two wrote a script incorporating songs that had been written for but discarded from Stephen Sondheim musicals, and Rennie also directed. They followed this with, with the plays Missing Persons and Blue Window, Three Postcards, and original music by... Lucas and Craig Camellia, blah, 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 blah. And then um, Prelude to a Kiss. They also joined forces for the feature film Longtime Companion, 1990, and the 1992 film adaptation for Prelude with Alec Baldwin and Meg Ryan. Um, And the 1995 film version of Reckless with Mia Farrow and Mary Louise Parker. Hmm. Um, So it's interesting that, I mean, he was sort of a kind of a giant, I think, in um, in theater, and I'm sure that's how he and Kathy Bates ended up. Plus, she's gay. Maybe they were, you know, maybe she was like... Stand- How did I not know that? How did I not know that? She's totally gay. Yeah, I didn't know that. But even if she wasn't, I'm sure that yeah. she would yeah. still mm-hmm. want to be... But, but I, 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 it would, it would uh, explain that they were how they may have been really close friends, and I'm sure they are close friends. I'm and thinking, I really wondered yeah. about where this director came from, but that makes a lot of sense, and it almost makes me wonder if they didn't have more than a professional relationship, that maybe they had a romantic relationship, too, that they worked so closely together on so many movies that he was able, they were able to... To, to stick together sounds like would, it doesn't it yeah it really does huh? it doesn't say so in this in this thing mm-hmm. but um but i i bet you that if you look on some of these that there'll be a kathy bates she'll start have starred in something that he's done you know i imagine that because mm-hmm. uh, it not what else could explain that tiny part she has I mean, she had to be his one friend. Scene, really isn't it it's just like one scene yeah <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> anyway all right you guys well I don't know. Maybe we should open the the show with that Alec Baldwin opener from um, Glenn Gary Glenn Ross. I don't know. It's such a great part. Mm-hmm. You could do it, or we could say we you know we don't have to always stick to the, just only talking about the movies of the year. The year that we talk about them, we can we can pick up uh, something about Glenn Gary Glenn Ross yeah. next week if you want to. I mean, we've literally got a two hour podcast here that with nothing really to cut out. Actually, two hours. So that's a. Whole- <laughs> I don't know how I'm going to fit in the movie clips, but we'll try. Put in, open with the Glengarry Glenn Ross quote, and then uh, inject your own narration that says, basically, I hope you enjoyed that, because that's all the Glengarry Glenn Ross you're going to get, because we forgot to talk about it. <laughs> okay, I'll do that. That's funny. <laughs> that's all the Glengarry Glenn Ross. Oh, David Mamet. All right, you guys. It was wonderful talking with you. Thank you mm-hmm. for... Yeah, I had, a, I had a really good time. I had a great time, too, and thanks so much. And, uh, You're welcome. We'll talk tomorrow about the latest tragedy in our lives. <laughs> okay. Have okay. a good one. Bye. Okay, good night.